If you have your Bibles, take them and turn in them to the book of 2 Peter. And this is our last look at 2 Peter for a little while. We end our series there. Um, But we're going to get to the last uh, verses of Peter via Daniel. And uh, you might say, well, that's kind of a strange way to get to 2 Peter. But uh, it's, it's just how I have found it best to frame what's coming in these last few um, verses of Daniel. Part of it just comes from my own journey in the last couple of weeks. Um, two, three weeks ago, I just needed to find some stability in my own life. I was uh, finding myself a little bit unsettled in my heart, and I needed to just be reminded of the truths that, that um, govern our world and that guide and direct our world. And I thought to myself, there's no better place to go than to the book of Daniel. And so I have just undertaken on my own to reread and think through various parts of the book of Daniel because it illustrates so well and so clearly God's influence and guide and care over the world in which we live and over the world which we've always lived in. And as I got there, I, I realized, no, Daniel is my compass. Daniel provides me with, the, with the, the, the correction that I need to once again live in this world with confidence and with certainty about where it's going. I spent my time obviously reading in chapter 1, and I spent a week in about chapter 1, and while I was there, you, you realize that's when uh, Nebuchadnezzar in three different uh, invasions comes to Jerusalem, takes people captive, and brings them back to Babylon. One of the group uh, includes Daniel and his three friends. And it fascinated me as I was reading that and thinking that through of the way that Daniel and his three friends engaged in Babylonian society. And what struck me was we often just dwell on the thing that they wouldn't do that they determined in a very careful, gentle way a a, a test on which they would eat not the king's food, but their own food, and see if that made a difference. And that's where we always focus on. But what we don't realize or we don't think about often, there's three things that they did do in significant ways that involved them in the kingdom of uh, Babylon and serving with Nebuchadnezzar. And so I was just wrestling that through in my head. Okay, what is my place, Father, in this world? How do I live in, in light of the fact that there are those over me, those around me, those that, that um, I am part of their empire, so to speak, and they ask me to do certain things. So it was fascinating and helpful for me to work through that reality. But it was chapter two that I really find, found helpful as it began to um, shape my thoughts even for Second Peter. And in this chapter, what we find, I think, as we read through chapter 2, which is the chapter about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has with the big statue, um, and then how the statue uh, has different irons, and then it has its feet are made of clay and um, iron, and it's destroyed by a rock that comes in and smashes it to bits. And uh, the story is about how God reveals his will to a pagan king and reveals to him what world history looks like. And so you come to Daniel chapter 2, and what we find there is we, we find a theology of history, not a timetable for history. And that's really important and helpful to think through as we come to this book, because as I say, God chose to reveal his plans for world history for hundreds of years to come to a pagan king in a dream that he had. And in doing so, as God speaks to the king through Daniel after he not only gave him the dream but also the interpretation of the dream, what we realize is that we have a pattern then of what our world will continue to look like until the end of the age. And God was telling Nebuchadnezzar how he fit into that pattern. He would show Nebuchadnezzar his place in history. He would tell him where he got his power from. His power was derived from God. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom. 
and all those that were under him. It was God who would tell him about the perspective of the empire that he was building. It was not an eternal empire. It was a fragile empire. God gave him a glimpse into what that empire would look like. He gave him a warning, too, of the power of God, that God's power was greater than any human empire. And so it was helpful for me to just work that through in my head again and realize that God's empire, God's rule, God's kingdom is over all the kingdoms of this earth. And one day God's kingdom will completely destroy and overrule every human kingdom. We need to wrestle with the spiritual realities that are at work even in all the external realities that we find ourselves living in. And so what we find is that God's people still need to understand prophetic truth, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about the world and how the world is unfolding. But then we have to get on with life in the world that we live. We can't, we can't leave this world. We, we can't hold ourselves up in our houses. We can't buy a little island, or maybe some of us can buy a little island somewhere and live out the rest of our life there. But that's not what God has in store for the vast majority of his people and those that put their trust in him. And this is where Peter, Peter comes in. How do we live among the metals knowing that God is, in his, God is on his way here, the kingdom of God is coming? The metals, by that I mean the head of gold, uh, the, the silver arms, the bronze, the iron feet, the kingdoms of this world. How do we live among the kingdoms of this world yet with our eye set on the coming kingdom of God and the rock that will crush all of those kingdoms that will grow into a mighty mountain and will be an everlasting kingdom. How do we live in light of that? See, Daniel and his three friends understood the story they were living in. And I wonder, do we understand the story that we're living in? Do we understand the world in which we live? Do we understand God's control in the world, over the world in which we live? Do we understand the way that God is leading, guiding, and directing this world? Do we, do we look at the fact that God's kingdom will one day be the only kingdom, an everlasting kingdom over this world? All the kingdoms of men are fragile. They will break. They will disintegrate. They're, they're, they're made up of iron and clay. What that means is they're unstable. They're inherently unstable. But the kingdom of God is eternal. And Peter, again, is reminding us that the end of this age is coming, after which God will usher us into a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, the eternal heavenly kingdom of God. See, we're not part of the world's history story. We know that story, but we're part of the different story, aren't we? The story that knows about the rock and knows about the kingdom of God that's coming. And again, so Peter is reminding us that we need to live in light of that story, to live in light of that reality. And that's how he closes off his letter to us. He, he just lays before us five or six things which help us live out the story of the kingdom of God amongst the story of the kingdoms of this world in which we live. Very simple things. Easy things to wrap our heads around, ways that God calls us to live in the world in which we find ourselves right now. And he simply begins in verse 14, as I read, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, there's a few things that, that just catch my attention there. Cer certainly, again, the word beloved. Do you think through that word? When you come across Scripture or when you hear it from this pulpit or read it in a book, do you, 
you just stop for a minute and think, wow, I'm one of God's beloved. God loved me. God sent his son to die for me. God has loved me before I ever knew that he loved me. God has written me down in his book before the foundation of the world. God tells me nothing will ever snatch me out of his hand. God says there is nothing that will ever suffer, separate me from his love which is, comes to me in Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And you hear that word, as a child of God, beloved. It should be almost a, a way in which you feel God wrap his arms around you. And he whispers in your ear, you are mine. I will never let you go. So Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for what? Well, waiting for judgment at the end of this age and waiting for the promise of the new heavens and the earth. Since you are waiting for these things, be diligent. That's a, an exhortation that comes by way of a command. It's, 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 so it's the first thing that, that we're reminded. How are we to live in light? Be diligent to be found by him, spotless and blameless and at peace. It's just a wonderful reminder to us of, of, of the sort of the sphere of how we are to live as we wait for the return of Christ. It's a motivational phrase. We understand that there's, there's things that the Spirit of God does in us, but there's also things that we do as we walk with God that's part of our sanctification, part of our life. And so he says, make every effort as far as it depends upon you. Be found spotless and blameless before Christ. Spotless and blameless are, uh, spotless was, was, uh, was how the priesthood and how animals for sacrifice were described in the Old Testament. They had no defects about them. Blameless is, is more an internal reality. It's, it's, it's a way that people look at us and there's nothing in us that they can accuse us of. We're, we're blameless before them and before God. And he says that you can be found. When Christ comes back, how will he find you? Be diligent to be found by Christ when he comes back. Spotless and blameless. On the one hand, there's the notion of examination. It's the same word that's used when Jesus is before Pilate. And three times Pilate declares after examining Christ, I find no guilt in him. In other words, Pilate's conclusion of Jesus, he was spotless and blameless. And so be diligent to be found spotless and blameless when Christ comes back. How is this possible, you might say? Is it our effort? Am I, I saying our salvation is by works and therefore we're to work this out and it all rests on our shoulders? Not at all. Because we are found blameless and spotless by virtue that we are in Christ. The spotless, blameless one. It's a wonderful reality about Christianity. and We don't talk about it a lot. We, we don't work it through a lot. But everywhere in the New Testament, the Scripture tells us again and again that we are in Christ. That Christ is in us. That the sphere of our living, the sphere of our thinking, the sphere of all that we do is in Christ. Abide in he says, find your strength, find your hope, find your purpose, find your life in me. If you abide in me, all things are possible. 
In another place, we are told that we die with Christ and we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Paul would say, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live is Christ living out of me. And so what, what he's really, what, what, what Peter is saying, I think we can, we can deduce from that is be diligent to be found in Christ. Be diligent that Christ is the source of your life, that Christ is the source of your peace. Be diligent to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, to have your trust firmly and squarely on him. There's a song that we sing from time to time, my hope is built on nothing less. There's a verse in that that summarizes what Peter is saying here so clearly. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The songwriter got it. May I be found in Christ, in Christ alone. May I be faultless because I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. What Peter is saying is be diligent, to be found in Christ, abiding in Christ. And then he says, and at peace with him. Are you at peace with Christ this morning? I think there is a sense in which Peter's asking that to everybody. I don't mean, have you made your peace with Christ? By that I mean, well, I think he exists, or I think he was a good guy, and I'm not going to think about this anymore. No, are you at peace with Christ? Is he your savior? Have you submitted to his lordship? Have you said to Christ, I need you? Is your soul at peace with Christ? But I think, furthermore, Peter is writing to the beloved. He's writing to those who are already at peace with Christ from a sense of their salvation. And so what more could he be saying or implying about being at peace with Christ? Well, I think he is maybe talking about what Paul talks about a little bit later in one of his books. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. Don't worry about everything, anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your minds and hearts. So when Christ comes back, will he find you at peace, at rest, looking for, hastening, waiting for his return? I think that's what Peter is getting at. So be diligent to be found by him, spotless, blameless, and at peace. Secondly, he commands us to be calculating and you find that in verse 15. This is another imperative. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We've talked about this a few times already, so this shouldn't be new to us. Why is the, delay, why is the Lord's return delayed? Is it because God is impotent? Is it because God has forgotten his promise? Is it because God really is unsure about whether or not he can pull this one off? No. Peter tells us very clearly the return of Christ is delayed because God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
And so he's reminding us there, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. As we wait for the return of Christ, yes, we long for it. Yes, we look for it. But use that time to grow in your own salvation. Use that time to make sure you are saved. Use that time to affirm the saving work of God in your life. Don't rely on your parents. Don't rely on your grandparents. Don't rely on the fact that you've come to church for 30 years. Don't rely on the fact that you, you've donated regularly. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Work it through. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. But I think there's a second application of that. Use the delay due to the patience of God as an opportunity to be an evangelist. To be a missionary. To be involved or concerned about evangelism and, and missions in our world. Jesus said this when he was looking out over the crowd. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you ever get the sense that the people that you live next door to, the people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, maybe some in your family, are harassed and helpless? The world is just beating them up. The world is just tearing them apart. The world is just pressuring them. And they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know who to believe. They are simply leaderless. They're, they're just all over the map. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, pray. God, you, you know that the people around me are helpless and harassed. You know that people around the world, you think of Afghanistan right now and you, you look at the pictures and you see the distress and you see the helplessness and you see the despair. That's just one small part of our world. Thank the Lord we have those that are in Afghanistan that are caring for them and that are loving them, that are um, like, like uh, God to them, harvesters in the field, but pray that God would send more. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. It still might be delayed for 200 years. But people need the Lord. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard of? Do you know that there's people right next door to you in the shopping counter, in the classroom that you go to, in the lunchroom where you eat your lunch that have never heard of Jesus? We, we, we kind of are shocked to hear that in a world in which we live like Canada. But there are people who have never, ever considered Christ. Never heard of him. Never heard of what he can do. Never heard why he came to this earth. They, they, they've only heard of him as a swear word, but they have no other connection with him. How are they to know? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. May God give us beautiful feet. As the patience of the Lord delays the return of Christ, may God give us beautiful feet to tell those who have never heard, to strike up a conversation even for two minutes in a lineup somewhere or walking along the beach. And then one of my favorite stories in the Bible, 
I can never pronounce it right, but it's the Gerizeniac demoniac. Remember Jesus got in the boat with his disciples and he went across the Sea of Galilee and they were confronted by this demon, demon-possessed man. He terrified the community. He broke the chains. He ripped the clothes. He, he, was, he was insane, demonically insane. And Jesus came to him and cast out the demons. And there were so many, they went into a herd of pigs and the pigs ran over the side of a hill and drowned in the ocean. This man was set free. It says they found him clothed and in his right mind. Wow. Naturally, when Jesus and his disciples are heading back to the boat, this guy's right behind him saying, I want to get in with you. I want to get in with you. I want to get in with you. I would want to. But remember what Jesus said to him? Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Loved ones, personal experience is almost irrefutable. When God has done something for you and you know it and you've been delivered and you're free or when people have seen you one way and now they see you in another way living and thinking and and joyful, they're confused. But they know something's happened. Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Calculate this through, loved ones. This is what Peter says. It's it's an accounting verb that he uses here. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Chalk it all up in your head. Say, God, maybe this is why Christ hasn't come because you want me to tell my spouse about you once more. God, maybe this is why you haven't sent Christ yet because my grandchildren haven't yet heard my testimony. God, maybe you're delayed your coming because I just moved into a new neighborhood and they're wondering who I am and a little bit about me and will you give me a chance to tell them? Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And in verse 7, he comes back to this again. You therefore, beloved... There it is again, the word beloved, and this emphatic, you, therefore, beloved. Since you already know this, since you know this beforehand, know what beforehand? Well, know that scoffers are going to come. Know that this age is going to end in judgment. Know that at the end of this age, there's this wonderful promise that that God will bring those who are in Christ into a new heavens and the earth. Since you know these things beforehand, take care. There's the next one. Take care. Be on your guard. Be on your guard against what? That you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. It's just a reminder of the nature of the world in which we live in. There is so much out there that is darkness and that is deception that is trying to tell you and I and our kids and our grandkids and our loved ones to take this path when the right path is this way. And there, are, there is no shortage of proponents of this path which leads to destruction. The appeal of lawlessness. Why is lawlessness so attractive to us? No law to guide me, no law to govern me, 
No rules to direct my life. I am the captain of my soul. I am the determiner of my life. Nobody is going to tell me what I can and can't do. You see, that's the way of life in particular that Peter is talking about is those who promote the fact that Christ is not coming back, there is no end-time judgment. They're just saying, come on, live it up. Follow your passions. Embrace sin. There is no such thing as sin after all because there is no judgment. It's just doing what you were born to do. Follow your passions. There's a certain amount of not only doctrinal concern here, but social concern here. We're easily carried away by the opinions of others. Do you find that about yourself? Do you find yourself sometimes caught up by what people think and having that determine your actions? It happens in so many spheres of life in which we live. Social pressure is significant. Social pressure can easily determine our behavior. The world is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. Peter himself knew this, didn't he? He had hours earlier declared his allegiance to God and said, I will never, ever deny you. Everyone else will, but not me. And then hours later, he denied Christ three times because of social pressure. Or what about another time when Peter was happily eating with Gentiles and all of a sudden a group of leading religious leaders from Jerusalem came and all of a sudden, no, I can't do that. That's not what we good Jews do. We don't eat with Gentiles. And the opinions of lawless people determined his behavior. He knew exactly what he was talking about. Be on guard lest you be carried away by lawless men and lose your stability. We really need to work this through a little bit. Could we lose our stability of our confidence in the truth of God's word? It could be lose our stability in the sense of our confidence that we are saved by grace and grace alone. It could be lose our stability in the sense of we lose all assurance that we are actually a child of God. See, Peter tells us in another place, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, ever fall away. Those qualities are, are, are growing in Christ-likeness, as is described in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 following. See, people try and undermine us all the time. Peter says, be on your guard against those that want to do that. Who want to shake your stability. Who want to weaken your confidence in the saving work of God on your behalf. Loved ones, we live in an upside-down world right now. We really do. We are all susceptible to the messaging of the world in which we live. I don't have a, a TV. Um, from time to time, we go on holidays and there'll be a TV in the room. I am amazed within 10 minutes of watching both the commercials and even the shows of the agenda and what is being driven home as correct and normal thinking. The social pressure in our world to sin, 
the social pressure in our world to call what is evil good and what is good evil is increasing. Sometimes we find ourselves envying the wicked. We look at their lifestyle. We look at their lives. We look at the seeming blessings that they have. Other times we realize that we are just becoming comfortably numb to the promises of God. We haven't seen them fulfilled. We've been praying. We've been hoping. We've been trusting. And it's just so far away and we've not seen any action on it and any movement on it. And we just begin to set them aside. And then, of course, there's our own passions, the passions of our flesh. We not only fight the battle within and our own war against those passions, but the whole world tells us, no, pursue those, follow them. They're no big deal. There's no judgment. That book's got it all wrong. Loved ones, the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. We read, uh, as elders, we were having a discussion on this this last week, and I found an article, and I quoted this definition of worldliness. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Do you find yourself sometimes trying to justify sin? Or just find yourselves out there and, and all the things that we know about Scripture, all the things that God tells us, all the way that God wants us to walk, all the paths that He wants us to follow in, the world is telling us, that's strange, like you guys are nuts. And that all the things that we are avoiding because God tells us to avoid, they say, no, no, that's normal. That's just what people do. Make no mistake, we need to be on our guard as we wait for the return of Christ. There's another one. Grow up in Christ. It says that in verse 17. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know what growth is, don't we? We understand growth. We plant seeds and we fertilize the ground and we water and, and the proof of our green thumb is that stuff grows. We're excited when it grows and we see evidence of growth and there's stalks and there's leaves and then there's eventually fruit or vegetables that come on that and we're excited because there's growth. That's how things should be. Or when we have children and, 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 and we see them growing and thriving and they meet certain percentiles and, you know, every first-time parent in particular, you know, they go to the doctor and, oh, my baby's in this percentile now for this, 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 and this and they're all excited and their excitement is because there's measures of growth. Well, to be true of us as Christians as well. And my question is to all of us, have we grown at all in this past year? How do you know? What's the evidence that you've grown in grace and the knowledge of Christ? See, we're to grow up into Christ in every way. Grow in grace. Have you, ever, have you, have you thought about that? Do you have an ever-deepening understanding in your heart of grace? An ever-riding response to the magnitude of God's grace towards you and I? Do we realize the riches of Christ's grace to us? Or, or are we happy with, well, I, I, said, I said my prayer and I accepted Christ in my heart, and that's pretty cool. Thanks, he saved me. Do we grasp the extent to which Christ or what Christ has done for us? 
Have we settled in our hearts the magnitude of by grace you have been saved by faith? Really? Like, have you thought that through? Is grace really amazing to you? We sing that song so easily now. So many people sing it in so many contexts. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Why is grace amazing to you? Have you ever thought that through? You sing it, amazing grace, but what's so amazing about grace? And grace has brought me safe thus far. How has the grace of God brought you safe this far? Where do you see evidence of the grace of Christ in your life to this point in your Christian walk? How do you need grace to get you home? Peter earlier said, May grace and peace be multiplied to you through a knowledge of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we grow in grace by growing in the knowledge of Christ and of God. Grace is massive. Like, it's massive. And our need of grace and the work of grace is unplummetable. I think that might be a word or I just made it up. Peter says, as sons and daughters of God, grow in grace. But then he says, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as well. I was just thinking this through. and Just let me throw this stuff out to you. Great, grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Do you know what that means? Do you know, do you know what that, the implications of that for our lives? Christ is the Lord. He is the master. He is the commander. He is the one that dictates all the boundaries of our life. Our response is to submit to him, not to rebel against him. It's to appreciate, enjoy, accept, know the, 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 the commands and the ways that he leads us. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, we all have a rebellious heart. We all are, are stiff-necked. And what Peter says is grow in the knowledge of our Lordship. My yoke is easy, easy. My burden is light. Is that how you think about Christ? Or do you, do you feel it oppressive to, to walk with Christ and to, to follow what he says? Well, then ask for a change of heart and grow in the, the beauty and the wonder of the Lordship of Christ over your life. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. What do you know about Christ your Savior? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you plummeted the depths of your salvation, of reconciliation? What it is about Christ and his work that, that, that through salvation has reconciled us to God? What does it mean that we've been redeemed? And how does redemption of Christ, what, how do I grow in my knowledge of that? What about propitiation? What does it mean that, that Christ is my propitiation? That as he saved me, he set aside the anger of God. What's my justification mean? Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Not just Savior of me, Savior of the world. Not just Savior of humanity, Savior of creation. You'll never plummet the depths of that. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? It's an emphasis on His humanity. Ever thought about that? Do you think about that often? Why was Jesus a human? Why did, he, why did he have to become a human? Why did he have to take on flesh and blood? What was the implication of that? What was it like for him to take on flesh and blood? Did he walk? Did he sleep? Did he eat? Um, did he feel pain? Did he cry? Was he born? What was his mother like? 
And why is, it, why is the humanity of Christ necessary for my salvation? Does Christ really identify with me? Does Christ really understand me? Does Christ really know what it means to be human? Grow in your knowledge of Jesus. Grow in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God. Jesus is God. How can that be? How can the God of eternity, the God who has always been, how can he come to earth? How can he take on flesh? How does that work? How does one who is fully God and fully man exist in one body? Why is it necessary that our Savior be God? How can it be that we killed God? Did we? Did God die on the throne? Or on the cross? Why did he have to be God? What has God done for me in the person of Christ? Do you see how, how this is just endless, loved ones? And we, we settle with just such a simple, basic prayer to Jesus, and we forget that he's our Lord, he's our Savior, he's Jesus, he's Christ, and so much more. Grow in your grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, and worship him. This is one of three doxologies that are directed to Christ and Christ alone. To him be glory both now and in the day of eternity. For, Paul, for Peter to say that is for Peter to say Jesus is God. Because only God is to receive glory. Only God is to be worshipped. And Peter had earlier said that we are to grow in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here he's just reiterating that. Here are the other two doxologies that are written about Christ. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Wow. He will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. Is that not a person you want to praise? You want to honor? You want to glorify? Is there anybody else you know that can rescue you from your sin? Rescue you from darkness? Is there anyone else that you know that can usher you, guide you, direct you into his eternal kingdom? To him, the one that can do that, be glory forever and ever. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Do you feel the love of Christ? Have you experienced the love of Jesus in you? And the focus here in Revelation is the love of Jesus as demonstrated in his redemption and salvation and giving his life for you. He loved us enough to die in our place and to bear our penalty and to take our curse and to bear the punishment of God to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Can you free yourself from your sins? Do you know anybody who can free you from your sins? Who can release you from their power? Who can release you from their penalty? Who can break its power over your life? To the one who can do that, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. 
So Peter reminds us as we wait for Christ to come, glorify Him. Look to Him for all that He has done. Praise Him for all that He is doing. Glorify Him with your actions. Glorify Him with your words. And the final word is simply affirm truth. Amen. Do you know what amen means? So be it. Yeah. So be it. That is true. Make it so. It's, an, it's a word of affirmation. It's a word of declaration. It's a, it's a word that, that, that throws us behind it and says, make it so. I believe this is true. And so Peter, after he's written everything that he has, it's like his final statement of his own confession. Amen. I believe this. This is so. This is true. And so as we sit here this morning, and we affirm our faith in song and in heart and in prayer. Will we together confess our affirmation of Peter's words to us today by saying amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter's encouragement to us as he wraps up this little letter telling us how we ought to live. Father, would you help us just to follow through what he says? Would you... Help us to be those, Father, who are diligent to be found by you with a certain quality of life and at peace with you. Would you help us to consider on a regular basis why you have delayed the coming of Christ and how that delay is for our good and for the good of others around us? Father, would you remind us as we do this that we are to live our lives in a guardful way, taking care of who we listen to and how it influences our life that we are called to grow in our grace and our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are to worship Him and that we are to constantly affirm Your truth given to us through these writers of Scripture by simply saying amen to it when we read it and we hear it. Thank you, Father, for Your care for us, Your provision for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.